Happy Mother's Day. Welcome to Spring Meadows Presbyterian Church Sunday School. We're would imagine a jealous God. That's what J.I. Packer says in his book, Knowing God. He says, there's lots of gods we might fabricate in our own minds, but we would naturally create ones who only had the characteristics we admire, like love and mercy and patience and stuff like that. Jealousy, that's far less likely. Yet, time and time again, God reveals himself as a jealous God. For example, he expresses jealousy for his own name in Ezekiel 39:25, which says, Therefore, says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. And this is number two in your handout. Throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, God always draws his people's attention to himself, not to personal holiness or social justice or any of the good things that follow from a good relationship with God, but to himself. And when his special people's attention wanders from him, he's quick to draw them back. So the attribute of divine jealousy reflects God's love but it is an intolerant love, a love that will not permit his glory to be stolen by his children's idolatry. Idolatry. So, jealousy seems like an odd word to use of God, especially as a self-description, since this word is generally used negatively in today's culture. The description of God as jealous is an anthropomorphism, and we all know what that is, and consequently, jealousy in God is not identical with the jealousy in us. His jealousy does not originate in insecurity or anxiety, given that God is a God of simplicity, where his essence is identical to his attributes, since he's without parts. Or he is a God of eternality. He has no beginning or end, but is timeless. He's a God of immutability. He does not change and impassibility. He is not subject to emotional fluctuation or suffering. And all this means is that he doesn't become jealous. Rather, he simply is jealous. He doesn't become jealous. He's not reacting. So it's an essential attribute to the God who is first and foremost concerned about his glory. And this is number three in you hand, on your handout. So what we have here is not our customary meaning of jealousy but rather an expression describing a holy commitment to glorify his name and a protective love, a protective love for his special people. God's jealousy is a sweet guarantee that his children do not drift away into meager forms of life or unfulfilling modes of existence. The second commandment in Exodus 25 says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth below or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. So right there in the middle of the Ten Commandments, God introduces us to the idea that he's a jealous God and that he is not willing to share you with any other God or idol. 
So again, it's important to understand how the word jealous is, is used. Its use in Exodus 25, which we just read, to describe God is different from how it's used to describe the, jealous, the sin of jealousy in Galatians 5.20. It's in the list of sins in Galatians 5.20. So when we use the word jealous, we use it in the sense of being envious of someone who has something we don't have. Uh, for example, a person might be jealous or envious of someone because they have a nice car, a nice home, a nice job, or whatever. This is number four in your handout. In the Bible, God is jealous when someone gives to another something that rightly belongs to him. Rightly belongs to him. So the jealousy of God means that he cannot and will not give up his rightful place or glory to anyone or anything. There is only one true God, and the things that are true about him are true about him alone. God will not, nor is it possible, for him to share his rightful honor with anyone or anything else. For example, we see in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. You all know this verse very well. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And you notice the kicker at the end, so that no one may boast. God is jealous for his glory, and he gets all the credit, every bit of it. So God is jealous because he knows full well the consequences that occur when we turn our attention to something or someone other than him. God's jealousy originates from a pure and perfect concern and love for his children. Exodus 34, 14 says, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. So here he says his name is Jealous. Yet modern people are often uncomfortable when the Bible speaks of God's jealousy. But God's jealousy is intimately related to God's love toward us. And this is number five in your handout. The relationship that God calls us to is not merely one of subjects obeying a king. Rather, God calls us into a covenantal, covenantal relationship with him. And his jealousy is spousal. That's kind of a weird word, but it means like a spouse in marriage. That's, it's like a marriage relationship. God seeks a relationship with, with us that is characterized by priority, fidelity, and intimacy. So jealousy is an emotion we often describe as seen between lovers. And marriage is one of the many analogies used in Scripture to emphasize the relationship of God to his people. This illustration is used both in the Old Testament and the New Testament to picture love, intimacy, privilege, and responsibility. For example, we see in the Old Testament, Hosea 2, 19-20 says, And I will betroth you, Israel, to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Or in Isaiah 54, 5, which says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. Or in Jeremiah 2, 2, which says, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I will with God. 
Jealousy is God's rightful demand for our exclusive attention or loyalty. In short, God's kind of jealousy is appropriate and good because He is defending His word and His high honor, and He makes a strong, exclusive demand of those who are His treasured people. So Israel's relationship with God as her husband in the Old Testament is like the New Testament bride of Christ, which describe Christ's relationship to the church. So for example, in John 3, 29, John the Baptist says, I am not the Christ. The one who has the bride, the church, is the bridegroom, who is Jesus. 2 Corinthians 11.2 says, um, where Paul's encouraging the church at Corinth to stay loyal to Jesus, he says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to Christ, as a pure virgin to Christ. Or Revelation 19.7, which says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. So guess what? We're all members of the bride. So our relationship with God is like a marriage. It's an exclusive relationship. And they say there's just about nothing more painful than your spouse committing adultery. And as sinners, we have a tendency to put ourselves spiritually into the arms of other lovers when we commit spiritual adultery. And what provokes God's jealousy is our idols. God says, if you love anything more than me, I get jealous. I love you. So God is asking what any spouse would ask for. God wants your heart. He wants to be first. Covenantally, God is giving himself to us, and he wants us to give ourselves to him. So what is God's remedy for our our adulterous hearts? Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So we are the bride, and Jesus dies for the church, that she might be holy, without spot or wrinkle. Jesus loves us, but it is a jealous love. God's wrath is the jealous guardian of his glory. So let's move to the attribute of wrath. Does anybody have any questions about jealousy first? No? It's pretty self-explanatory. So God is able to be both perfectly loving and wrathful. Unlike us, he's not given to outbursts of emotion or to irrationality as we discussed in our lesson on impassibility. His wrath is as perfectly and completely manifested as is his love. Nahum 1, 2-6 says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. 
The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. And this is number seven on your handout. Wrath is the necessary outworking of God's holiness, of God's holiness in reference to sin. It is the inevitable response of God to all that is contrary to him and which is in rebellion against him. Wrath is God's eternal detesting of all unrighteousness and infringement on his holiness or any attempt to share his glory. Wrath is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. Interestingly enough, there's more references in the concordance for anger, fury, and wrath than there are for tenderness and love. The scriptures give abundant testimony to the reality of God's wrath. Um, in fact, there are over 600 references in the Bible to God's anger, wrath, and judgment. And it's not just in the Old Testament. For example, in the New Testament, we see Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And as Kevin DeYoung says, divine wrath may not be the decorative masthead or the flag we raise up every flagpole. And the doctrine may be underneath other doctrines. It may not always be seen, but its absence, if missing, will always be felt. This is number nine on your handout. If we do not believe that God is a God of wrath as well as a God of love, and that his essential holiness means the inevitable punishment of sin, then we won't believe in the substitutionary, the substitutionary nature of Christ's death on the cross. That is why the doctrine of God's holy wrath borne by his son Jesus at Calvary is repugnant to the liberal theologian who has an erroneous view of God. As God's love is infinitely incomprehensible, so is his displeasure hate, anger, and wrath. And there's a good reason for the writer in Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 31, to warn sinful people that it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, despite the use of metaphor, the wrath of God is very different from human wrath for those, again, who remember our lesson in God's attribute of impassibility. We learned that God's passion, like every other aspect of his character, simply cannot be understood in human terms. It's because we have cloaked God's holiness in a distorted and sentimental concept of love that the very mention of God's wrath may strike us as being out of character. And this is number nine on your handout. God's wrath should not be understood as an irrational an irrational passion. There is nothing capricious or arbitrary about the holy God. He is never, ever malicious, spiteful, or invictive. His anger is neither mysterious nor irrational. God's wrath is never unpredictable, but always predictable because it is provoked by sin and sin alone. So God's wrath is his response to the presence of sin. We see in Romans 2.5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, 
you were storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Or Romans 4.15 says, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And Romans 19.15 says, speaking of the, the uh, eschatological Christ, eschatological means the end times, it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And then, of course, there's the most misquoted Bible verse ever from the movie Pulp Fiction. Here's what it really says. And here God's talking about the Philistines in Ezekiel 25:17. He says, I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. So God expressing wrath is not like a human losing his temper. God doesn't flash with anger and throw an unsuspecting angel across the universe before he can think straight and say, oh, sorry, man, lost my temper. Now, God doesn't lash out in a crude, human-centered way. When God in his holiness confronts his Im image bearers in their rebellion and sin, there must be wrath, or God is not the jealous God he claims to be. And the price of diluting God's wrath is diluting his holiness. So it's imperative that we have a biblical understanding of sin. Otherwise, we'll never grasp the importance of God's wrath and the nature of the gospel. And you know what? Sometimes telling the bad news is what makes the good news so good. So this is number 10 on your handout. Divine wrath does speak of God's affection, but it is not presented as mere feeling. Generally, his wrath is synonymous with the implementation of his immutable justice and holiness. His justice is not presented as the angry responses of a powerful deity, but his justice proceeding from a just legal context. God's wrath is judicial. Judicial. Everyone gets exactly what they deserve. But when men reject the idea of the wrath of God, it's evident that they really don't believe in the perfect holiness of God since God's holiness involves a burning indignation against sin. And those who reject the wrath of God often plead that their, their rejection is in the attribute of, of saving God's love. But actually their rejection of divine wrath inflicts a grievous wound on the doctrine of love which they're trying to protect. And that's because, and this is number 11 on your handout, Christ's sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and propitiate God's wrath is the greatest exhibition of divine love in the history of the world. The word propitiation, it's a word you should all become familiar with. It's used in the New Testament to describe the pacifying, placating, the satisfying or appeasing of God's wrath. Propitiation lies at the heart of God's redemptive work. So what was propitiated? God's wrath. Christ satisfied it. And we read that in 1 John 4.10, which says, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son 
to be the propitiation for our sins. So it's clear from, from Scripture that Christ's atoning death was substitutionary or vicarious and that by it he satisfied the holiness, justice, and wrath of God that we as sinners deserve. And as Pastor Tim usually says when we're taking the Lord's Supper, he says, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us so that he ex could extend the cup of jo God's joy to us. So the Bible discusses wrath within normal history, but especially at the end of time, what you might call God's eschatological wrath. And eschatological, as we said earlier, means the end of time, the final judgment. And that comes from the Greek word eschatos, which means last. For example, we see it in John 3:36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus, as that eschatological judge, will restructure reality in those last days and reassign, reassign people and everything else to its rightful state. When this powerful intervention occurs, the wrath of God will be ended, says Revelation 15.1. But Christians need not fear the wrath of God. We have God's promise that we are his chosen vessels of mercy. Remember uh, Romans 9, 19 to 23. It says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured mu with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for his glory. God may discipline, rebuke, or test his covenant people, but wrath is reserved from the, for the unrepentant sinner. So what gratitude should, should surge in our hearts because God has not appointed us to, uh, to wrath, but to salvation through our Lord Jesus. And this is number 12 on your handout. The wrath of God is a fearsome and terrifying thing. And only those who have been covered, who've been covered by the blood of Christ can be assured that God's wrath will never fall on them. Romans 5, 9 says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So when we speak of God's eschatological wrath, we're speaking of the biblical doctrine of hell. So let's talk a little bit about hell. As Hebrews 10.31 says, it is truly a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And this is number 13 on your handout. Hell is what hell is because the holiness, the holiness of God is what it is. The seriousness of sin is not measured by the sin itself, but by the value and the worth of the one being sinned against. Hell is not one degree hotter than our sins demand that it be. Hell should make our jaws drop at the righteous and just holiness of God. It should make us tremble before his majesty and grandeur. And one of the, the great questions that faces the church today concerns the existence and the nature of hell. Um, and the doctrine of hell is under attack from outside and inside the church. This is number 14 on your handout. 
the question each one of us must answer is this. Does hell exist? Is it, as Christians have long claimed, a place of eternal conscious punishment? Conscious punishment? A real place where real people will go for real time and face the real wrath of a real God? And hell is about God keeping His word. That God sends the wicked to hell shows Him to be faithful and just. In order for God to be just and extend mercy, He must keep His promise to punish transgression. In the Bible's presentation of the true story of the world, God upholds justice at the cross and in hell. Jesus died on the cross to establish God's justice and ensure that those who repent of sin and trust in Christ receive mercy that is also just. God punishes the wicked in hell to uphold justice against all who refuse to repent of sin and trust in Christ. Romans 9.22 tells us, By the torments of hell, God will show His wrath and make His power known so that He might make the riches of His glory known to the objects of His mercy. And hell helps us to understand just how great God really is and how sinfully wretched we really are and how incredibly amazing it is that He would show us grace at all. Additionally, the, the reality of hell will focus above all on the task of proclaiming the gospel to those who are in danger of spending eternity there. Now, the biblical doctrine of hell is so unpopular that few would give credence to it at all except, except that it comes to us from the teaching of Christ himself. In fact, and this is number 15 on your handout, almost all the biblical teaching about hell comes from the lips of Jesus. Jesus taught it about more than all the other biblical authors put together. Often Jesus warned of the day of judgment, spoke of condemnation, and described hell in graphic, shocking terms. You only have to read his parables about the, the uh, tenants, or the parable of the wedding feast, or the parable of the virgins, or the parable of the talents, to realize that G Jesus is frequently motivated um, his hearers to heed his message by warning them of the coming judgment. It was not beneath Jesus to scare the hell out of people. It is this doctrine, perhaps more than any other, that may strain even the Christian's loyalty to the teaching of Christ. Modern liberal Christians have pushed the limits of minimizing hell in an effort to sidestep or soften Jesus' own teaching. Hell is a reality. That's what Jesus taught. This is number 16 on your handout. The Bible describes hell as a place of outer darkness, a lake of fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. If these images are indeed symbols, then we must conclude that the reality is probably worse than the symbol suggests. J.I. Packer said, it is really a mercy that God in Scripture is so explicit about hell. It's merciful for, for these uh, terrifying descriptions. And God is what makes hell, hell. This is number 18 in your handout. In hell, God will be present in the fullness of His divine wrath. His divine wrath. 
He will be there to exercise his just punishment of the damned. They will know him as an all-consuming fire. And anyone reading through the Gospels, the Epistles, or Revelation with an open mind has to conclude that eternal life after death is the great reward for which we hope, and eternal destruction after death is the dreadful judgment which we should want to avoid at all costs. And perhaps the most terrifying aspect of hell is its eternality, that it will have no end. The Bible clearly teaches that the punishment is eternal. Matthew 25, 46 says, And these, the goats, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous, the sheep, into eternal life. A lot of other verses on that. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9, or Isaiah 66, 20. The eternality is, is pretty solid in Scripture. And this is number 19 in your handout. In Scripture... The same word is used for both eternal life and eternal death. For God to come up with a just sentence, a just sentence less than eternal would be to say that he is less than eternal. Every sin we commit is an attack on an infinite eternal God. And any act we commit against an infinite holy God deserves an equally infinite punishment. It is an infinite evil to sin against an infinite God. Thus, the just sentence for sinning against this holy, holy, holy God is to be judged guilty and to be eternally and and consciously face the wrath of God against sin. And hell is final. There is no second chance after death. Hebrews 9.27 says, Man is destined to die once and after that, face judgment. And finally, the degree to which sinners in hell are punished individually differs according to their sins on earth because God is a God of justice. Verses like Romans 2.5 says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous God. And hell will be hotter for those who hear the gospel preached and ignore it and reject it. So, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? It was because that was the only way God could righteously not send every one of us to hell. Jesus had to take what was due to us, and that means he had to endure the torments of hell as he hung on the cross. Hell is certain for all who reject Jesus. And this is number 20 on your handout. If there is no hell, there is no need for a cross. The cross shows us the depth of our sin and the height of God's holiness, the purity of God's wrath and the greatness of God's mercy. The cross assures us that hell exists. The cross demands that we look to the one hanging there and put all our faith, all our hope, all our trust in him. And when the doctrine of hell is rejected, it follows that the terms saved and salvation become meaningless. And really, no man can ever enter heaven until he is first convinced he deserves hell. So if we lose the doctrine of hell, either becoming too embarrassed to mention it or too culturally sensitive to affirm it, we can count on this. The boat will drift. 
The cross will be stripped of propitiation. Our preaching will be devoid of urgency and power. And our work in the world will no longer center on calling people to faith and repentance. Lose the doctrine of divine judgment and our message, our ministry, and our mission will all eventually change for the worse. And in conclusion, this is number 21 on your handout. Divine mercy, divine mercy without divine wrath is meaningless. Only when we know that we were objects of wrath, stood condemned already, and would have faced hell as God's enemies, were it not for undeserved mercy, can we sing from the heart, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. Boy, that stares me up. So the horrific nature of what we have been saved from only intensifies the glory of what we've been saved to. And as we come to grips with the horror of hell, we look with ever more love, ever more gratitude, and ever greater worship to the one who endured that hell for us and saved us. Praise Jesus. That's it. Questions? Yes, Andy? Is the dismissal of hell a particularly modern concept, or did that happen more in early heresies? You know, I don't really know. Tim, do you have any input on that? I, Tim says people have always rejected hell. Any other questions? Yes, Rick. Eleven is redemptive work, Christ's redemptive work. And seventeen is symbols. They're not merely symbols. You know, this is a rough lesson. You know, it's it's um but it's an important lesson. You know, when we see what Christ saved us from, man, that grace does seem amazing. Um yes, Bob. In light of today's lesson, anybody that would um, deliberately misinform people about purgatory, it's a di diabolical thing to do in, in light of what we know the scriptures teach. Right. And it it's, seems like somebody that would preach that to people would be in for a... a well, the concept of purgatory a was a money-raising scheme. A worse so. judgment than, than, than somebody that be believed that false teaching. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, and one of the hard things about it, quite frankly, I'm surprised nobody brought this up, is, you know, it's, it's terrifying to think of friends, family, and relatives who may spend an eternity in hell. And quite frankly, there are some people who say, I can't believe in a God like that. I can't. I can't believe in a God who would, you know, send my mother to hell, speaking of Mother's Day. But, um, you know, it's, it tests our loyalty. Yes, Rick? Uh, answer to two. The answer to number two. You need to pay better attention. <laughs> the answer to number two is protective love for his children. 
protective. Any other questions? Hmm? Oh, two. Two is idolatry. Sorry. Okay. We've got plenty of time to discuss here, man. I ran right through this one. Yes, John. Way over there. Wait for the microphone. I just recently read, probably this week, like um, the, uh, the passage that says that we have to live as if we're giving an account to to God at at um, when we die, basically. How how we, I mean, in light of hell, but also in the light of being saved, and I think that verse puts fear into you, but how do you, how do you actually um, give an account of your life? Um, you give the account of your life repentantly. That's the, that's the concept here, is we all deserve hell, and repentance means throwing all your trust in, on Jesus. So that is what gives us hope. You know, you've heard the old story, you know, you get to heaven, and God says, why should I let you in my heaven? The answer is, you shouldn't. But I, I am Jesus' brother. He died for me. So you're not giving your account of life. You're giving the account of Jesus' life. That's the concept of imputation that we've discussed in previous lessons. It still should put the fear into you, but it should put joy into you as well. I mean, it's... Uh, yeah, the funny question is, is God saves us, or Jesus saves us from what? From God, from God's wrath. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Any other questions? No? Nope. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus who satisfies your wrath, which each of us deserves. Help us, we pray, to keep our love and our focus on him. We pray in his name. Amen.